this morning. We're going to start the way we always begin here uh, before jumping into the scripture reading. I'm going to talk to our young ones. Young ones, uh, I'm going to tell you what the passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about, and really get us all on the same page. So uh, I want to talk to you all, because this has everything to do with the passage, I want to talk to you all about irony. I think we've talked about this before. Irony. Do y'all, am I saying that right? Irony. It sounds weird. It sounds like it's one of those, I'm having one of those moments where it sounds weird, the word, irony. It's, that's the word, right? Irony. That's weird. Okay. Uh, there's a comedian out there who's got like uh, some really good examples of, of irony. Uh, he, I think you'll get it. Um, okay. Quicksand. Why does it work so slow? That's a little ironic. How about an ambulance? You know, young ones, you know what an ambulance is for? It's like to help hurt people. Well, what about this? Uh, irony, getting run over by an ambulance. That's ironic. How about this? Drowning uh, in the pool of a cruise ship out at sea. Like you're out at sea, you're on a boat, you're good, but then you drown in the pool in the boat. At the sea. Like that's, that would be ironic. Uh, getting beaten up with a life vest. Ironic, right? Okay. How about this? The one how about this? The one thing a babysitter is not supposed to do is sit on a baby. Okay? How about this? Uh, y'all know what charades is? Like it's this silent game where you don't talk and you've got to like act out uh, like two words and like sounds like I, I, I don't really remember how but you play this game charades. How about this? Uh, dying of a heart attack while playing a game of charades. That would be ironic. Uh, how about a know-it-all is a person who knows everything except for how annoying he is. Ironic, okay? How about that? Last one, okay. It is illegal. Y'all, this is true. It's illegal to yell fire in a crowded theater. So if there, if there is a fire, you're supposed to yell something else. Like instead, like flames, smoke maker, uh, bad hot. That's ironic. Okay, that, that's, uh, okay, irony. Here's irony. Irony is, it's, <laughs> I don't think I'm saying it right. Irony is thinking you'll get one thing and then you get the opposite. Irony is thinking like one thing is going to happen and then the opposite thing happens. It's thinking you're going to do one thing and then you do the opposite. We are about to read about David and Goliath. We're going to be in this this Sunday and next Sunday, but this story, young ones, kids, it is so full of irony. Uh, David comes to face off with this giant, Goliath, and everyone is, like, making fun of David. Everyone thinks David is ridiculous, and, and the, the, like, the irony is in that, he, you know, it's impossible. What can he do? The irony is David actually is their anointed king. And they're making fun of him, and they're ridiculing him. They're like, what are you doing here? And they don't get it. Like, he is their anointed king, and he's there because he loves them. Even as they're mocking him, he loves them. And he lays his life on the line to go and fight for them. It's, there's so much irony here. And, and y'all, that's got to sound like someone else, and it's supposed to. David points to Jesus. I heard it. Yeah, Jesus. Yes, and here's the irony is, like, with Jesus, he came, and he got mocked, and he was made fun of, and, like, and, and he looks weak. You know, he's just this old Jewish carpenter. Like, what can you do? And yet, uh, he is the king of heaven who has come down in order to save the people that are mocking him because he loves us. 
And here's more irony. Irony is when things are easy, we act like we don't need Jesus. And then when things are hard, we, when things get really hard, we, we act like Jesus can't help us. Like, or that he doesn't want to help us. Irony is that thing of like, whether things are good or bad, we, we act like Jesus is far away. Which is really, really crazy ironic because uh, we also come here. And we say that Jesus came all the way from heaven down to earth in order to live for us and to die for us, to save us so that we could be with him forever, even though we don't deserve it all because he loves us. And here's what we need to, we need to hold on to this awesome truth today. I want you to see Jesus for who he really is. That if he went all the way to the cross for you, you can know whatever it is you're going through right now, he is absolutely with you. Even though you can't see him right now, I want you to see by the eyes of faith that he sees you. And he is here with you right now. And he will always be with you. And when he comes, and he is coming, you, you will see. You won't have to see with the eyes of faith anymore. You'll actually see, see. Uh, we are, uh, here we go. We, we're going to turn to our passage in uh, 1 Samuel 17. We're in our spring series in the Old Testament. Uh, the uh, just context here, the people of Israel have rejected God as their king. Uh, and they, they've just rejected God. They've, they've rejected his judges, who were these figures who were kind of like kings before there were uh, kings in Israel. They've rejected the judge, too. Uh, they want a king like the surrounding nations. So God gives them a king that's just like the king of the surrounding nations. It's that, like, be careful what you ask for. And, and the king that they're given by God is a guy named Saul, who seems so gifted and so promising at the beginning. And then Saul starts acting unkingly. Uh, and he ends up rejecting God too. For that rejection, God rejects him. And then, and we, we, we haven't read this yet, but this is, this is context here. Just in the previous chapter, uh, Samuel goes at God's direction. He goes and anoints someone else to replace Saul after Saul dies. He anoints a young man, David, to be the new king after Saul so uh, our introduction to David here is, it's, you know, it's that famous, famous story, David and Goliath. There's so much here. We're going to do it this Sunday, next Sunday. So this is really a two-part thing. This morning what we're asking is, what do you see when you look at David? Next Sunday we're going to ask, what does David see when he looks at Goliath? But this morning we're asking, like, what, what do you, what does everyone see when they look at David. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. It, I know this is a, a, a longer passage. Uh, it says some selections between 1 and 37, but here's the truth. Uh, we're actually not reading verse 1, so it's not as long as you might think. Um, starting in verse 2, it says this, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up uh, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. I stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, 
Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. David was the youngest. The three followed, uh, the three, these are the three eldest brothers, followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a, uh, with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him. I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver him from the hand of this from, uh, deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we want uh, we want to ask. What does everyone see when they look at David? Because uh, what you see isn't always what you get. It's just not always the case. There's more than meets the eye with David. Okay, and we gotta we gotta start with uh, we gotta start with us. Uh, like, I mean, us, us. What do you think you see when you look at David? So close your eyes, everybody. Close your eyes. Uh, kind of thing, and imagine David. Who do you see, David, here facing off with Goliath? Who do you see? Uh, as in, like, how old do you think David is? Saul says to him, uh, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. 
So how old David is really depends on your Sunday school and who you're teaching, like what age you're teaching this to. If you're teaching uh, the kids, then David suddenly is like seven or eight years old. If you're teaching the youth, well, then he's grown up a little bit and he's like a teenager. Uh, my professor, Gordon Hugenberger from, from seminary, Old Testament professor who uh, taught me First Samuel, he, he tells us this story of when he was teaching this story in a kid's Sunday school, he's explaining, he's saying, like, David was so surprised that no one was willing to fight Goliath. Like, the king had offered all these amazing awards. If you fight, you, you know, you get to marry the king's daughter. And one of the boys looked up at him and said, well, no wonder no one wanted to fight. <laughs> like, point well taken. There are problems underestimating David's age. There is no way Saul or anybody in that army would let a little boy walk out onto that battlefield. They, they were not cool with child soldiers, okay? The Hebrew word here for boy is used elsewhere in 2 Samuel 14 to describe 40-year-old Absalom. Then it's used later to describe 41-year-old Rehoboam. Because this, this word doesn't just refer to age, it also refers to stage of life. Uh, the, the term technically refers to any man who does not have any dependents. Like it's any man who doesn't have kids. Uh, so when Saul puts his armor on David, David actually doesn't say, we didn't read about this, but we'll do it next time, but David doesn't say, oh man, these don't fit. He says he's not used to them. Because he's not a soldier. And maybe they really didn't fit. And they probably, they probably didn't fit because Saul was too, super tall. He was super tall himself. Like he was Israel's champion, Saul. Uh, and so David was probably like a medium and Saul's like XL. Okay. And, and we want to say, and David is young. We don't want to miss that. David is young uh, and he's not a soldier. We didn't, we didn't read this, but just a few verses later when David steps out onto the battlefield... Goliath looks at him, and he sees what everyone else there sees, what we want to see. Uh, it says, Goliath looked at him and hated him because he was young, like too, too young to have kids yet, and ruddy. And ruddy is uh, a way of describing a young adult whose full beard hasn't come in yet. Uh, and, and so their face, it's got more red sunshine on it. Because unlike the rest of the older bearded men, like he hasn't, he doesn't have his full beard yet. So David could be like late teens, maybe early 20s. Uh, in World War I, uh, so, so, so we still want to point up like, okay, so this is, this is wild. In, in World War I, the American 308th Regiment, this is World War I, this regiment was surrounded by enemy forces, and, and they're coming under severe mortar attack, uh, machine gun fire, uh, casualties, super heavy, and they're running out of supplies. And then the unbearable situation is intensified when American artillery starts shelling the area the 308th was in. So they're even taking on friendly fire. The only communication they had left was by carrier pigeon. Like literally, one of the things, you like take a bird and you send a message. Absolutely desperate. But not like totally impossible. Highly improbable a sergeant releases the last bird that they have with a note pleading to the Americans to hold their fire. As soon as the pigeon lifted off, a stray bullet grazed the side of his head and tore out his left eye. Then a piece of shrapnel hit his chest, shattering his chest bone. 
but super strong homing instinct. He struggles on. Then all of a sudden, another piece of shrapnel tore off his left leg. The, le- like the message canister is now dangling from torn ligaments. That sergeant looks on. It's not impossible, okay? Highly, highly improbable. But the pigeon made it. The pigeon made it, and the order went out immediately to stop the shelling, and the 308th regiment was saved. Okay, it's those kinds of odds everyone is giving to young David when they look at him to go face off against Goliath. Okay, not impossible. You know, crazier things have happened in war, but highly, highly, highly improbable. This does not look good. Which raises the question, why does David do this? What is the motive? Uh, this is not his problem. He, he's not in the army. All he has to do is what everyone's telling him to do and just go home. It's what his dad told him to do. His dad said, go find out how your brothers are doing and then immediately report back to me. There would be no disobedience, no unfaithfulness if he had done that. No shame. You know, the insults Goliath is throwing out, they actually don't apply to David. Not here. He's not a soldier. So why do this? And that brings us to what do the Israelites see when they look at David? And like us, like what misassumptions do they make about David? Why would David offer to fight Goliath when no one else would? Now, you're tempted here. You're tempted to think that David did it for the reward of marrying Saul's daughter. Well, he did it for wealth, fame, and, and glory. But David shows up, and he overhears the men talking about all this reward stuff, uh, what, what Saul has offered, and David asks a couple times if he's hearing them right, and the sense is that David is surprised no one's willing to take the offer. But this is also providing us a unique perspective of David in contrast to the one who is actually making the offer. You can tell a lot about a person based on how they think other people are motivated. When Goliath offers the challenge and no Israelite moves because they're absolutely paralyzed with fear, when no one will accept the challenge and fight Goliath, Saul offers great wealth and his daughter's hand in marriage, which would make you royalty. In your family, what this means is your, and your family will be exempt from taxes in Israel. Your family will be free. For Saul, it's all about money and status. Saul thinks money and status is how you motivate people. That's what Saul is offering if someone will risk their life. But that's not why David does it. In the next chapter, David does not ask Saul to pay up. And remember, it, it's, it, this is not David, a little boy, like, ooh, girl's gross. Like, no, we're not. It's not no, in the next chapter, when Saul offers David his daughter's hand in marriage, David declines, but he doesn't say like, I'm, well, I'm too young to get married. He says he's not worthy. He says, wait, wait, who, this, who am I? Who is my family? Do you know my father's clan in Israel? He said, well, we're, we're nobodies. Uh, that I should be the son-in-law to the king, and he does not marry that girl. Why does David do this? Saul thinks it's for the spoils, David's older brother said David was hanging around just to watch a show. He's there to watch people kill each other. 
He's there to watch his countrymen die. That's what his older brother says. That's a, that's a big and hurtful accusation. And it's the complete, utter opposite. Why does, why does David do this? What we are supposed to see when we look at David is this. David actually tells us himself his motive when he's trying to convince King Saul to let him go and fight Goliath and what he's going to do to Goliath. It says, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. What he's doing is he's just applying his experience as a shepherd to this moment in war because David was a literal shepherd. And something you might not know about shepherds uh, is actually they really, really did care for their sheep. They did. Sheep were not just lambs for the slaughtering. Like, that's not like the people actually didn't eat all that much meat uh, back in the day. They didn't eat it every day because you can't just like decide to have lamb chop for dinner and you know you, you slaughter a lamb. Just, like there's no refrigeration. You got it. You're gonna make use of the whole whole thing if you slaughter it uh, because the meat will go rancid in just a few days. So you got to eat meat. When? At, at festivals and at weddings and big gatherings. Normally, the shepherd is watching over and caring for his flock for the renewable resources like milk, uh, cheese, wool. The shepherd loves his sheep. Listen to, Jesus, listen, listen to Jesus describe himself as a shepherd of his people. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the, the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. David says to Saul, when a lion or a bear attacked one of my sheep, I attacked the lion. I attacked the bear. These were 300-pound African lionesses. These are 800-pound Syrian bears. But if it's got your beloved lamb in its mouth, you fight. A mom may be deathly, deathly afraid of spiders, but when a spider approaches her baby's crib, the mom becomes an unstoppable force of nature and brings down all her weight to crush that spider. Last summer in California, a mom, she's in her kitchen, and, and she hears her five-year-old son screaming for his life out on their front lawn, and she runs out, and she sees a mountain lion, mountain lion carrying away her son in its mouth. She does not hesitate. The mom suddenly becomes Mama Bear, and she chases down the lion, and she beats and strangles that lion, snatching her son out of its jaws, out of the jaws of death, saving her child. David's, David's motive is he loves the people who are being attacked. He loves the people who are being threatened with death. And he loves the Lord who's being mocked. D David, David does not need Saul's offer of riches. He doesn't need Saul's offer of his daughter to become Israelite royalty. All of that, it's already David's because God has given it to him. God had already anointed David as his new king. David knows, as he shows up, David knows who he is. He knows he's next in line. He knows he is the Lord's anointed. In the previous chapter, Samuel came to David's family. Samuel, this is the judge. Um, 
who, who anointed first Saul at God's direction as king, and now God tells him, no, new king. Samuel comes uh, to David's family, and uh, God tells him to pass over David's seven older brothers to anoint David, the youngest, as king. And the whole family is there, and the whole family witnesses it. And you have to know, you have to know at that time, like as Samuel is doing this, as the judge is doing this, that Samuel would have told David what Samuel's mom told Samuel about God's anointed king. And I know that sounds so random, but you, you, follow me here. At the very, very beginning of 1 Samuel, we actually didn't read this at the beginning, but at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, the whole story starts with the mother of Samuel, this woman named Hannah, who is in terrible, terrible grief because she's barren. She can't have a child of her own. And then God answers her prayers and says, I am going to give you a son, Samuel. Samuel will be the last judge of Israel before God gives Israel a king. And when Samuel is born, the Holy Spirit rushes upon Hannah, and she prophesies, and this is what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. It is not by one's own strength that one prevails. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's, that's one of those wild things. Hannah is given this vision of Israel's anointed king, but there's no king yet in Israel. The word anointed in the Greek, do you know what that word is? It's Christ. She gets a vision of an anointed king, a Christ king who lifts up the poor, a Christ king who serves in order to lead, a Christ king who attracts our service, our service, by leading us. Uh, there is no anointed Christ king like this in that world or in this world. A Christ king people would die for because they know he would die for them. Here's what all the Israelite soldiers do not see when they look at David. They don't see their anointed king going out to fight for them. And his brother who hurls insults at him, and his brothers who ignore him, they were there when David was anointed king. They know who he really is, but that's not who they see when they look at him. Everyone, everyone sees a nobody from a nobody family from Podunk Nowheresville, Bethlehem. But David is the little Christ king who still goes out, even though everyone's mocking, even though everyone's disbelieving, even though everyone is shunning him, he still goes out because he loves them, because he knows he's their king. You got the, the king there who's acting unkingly, and you've got the new anointed king, the only one who is acting kingly. But he is the little Christ king, lowercase Christ king. And it's David's descendant who is called David's greater son, a king in the line of David who is a greater king than David. It's Jesus, the Christ king, that we are supposed to see when we see David for who he is. Like, what do you see when you look at Jesus Maybe they see a nice man, you see him not winning but dying. When the, when the world looks at Jesus, maybe they see a nice man, maybe they see a good teacher, but ultimately they see a nobody. The world will look to every other person, any other person other than Jesus. 
And ultimately, that looks like looking at our self, which is why the world is full of self-love and self-realization and self-actualization and self-affirmation and self-achievement, and it's all achieved through us, the self, uh, through education and politics and technology and science, Marxism, all kinds of critical theories, or, or capitalism, or American exceptionalism and nationalism, or open borders, or the idea of a unified world, or our military might, or our universities, our medical advancements and ingenuity, our environmental correctiveness, our, our, it's us, it's us. There's a, there's a story from Aesop's Fables. It's called Belling the Cat. I just heard this this week uh, on a really cool podcast. Ask me about it later. Uh, a, group of, a group of mice are debating what to do about a marauding cat. And one mouse proposes they attach a bell to the cat's neck to, you know, that, so they can hear it coming, warn of its approach in time to get away. All the mice agree. That's a great idea. Yes. But then an older mouse speaks up and says, I just got one question. Who will bell the cat? And the lesson is, it's one thing to say something should be done, but it's quite a different matter to actually do it. We, the human race, we have got a big, big problem. Who's actually going to do something about it? Insert problem. Who's actually going to do something about it? We boast in our ability to solve the world's problems and achieve our own salvation. We've always done this, and we still haven't fixed the world. People still don't like each other, and we still die. But the world will keep looking to anyone but Jesus. New Testament scholars, church historians will tell you that crucifixion was practiced and known widely in the ancient Near East as... Uh, so horrific. Uh, the Romans were experts at it. And, and victims, they were stripped down, they were nailed to the cross, always on a, on a busy highway so everyone could see, always by the garbage heaps because what they're saying is your garbage. Worst offenders, and, and the worst offenders were beaten and flogged first. It was cruel, it was humiliating, and, and so humiliating, actually Roman citizens could not be crucified. Crucifying her citizens was a way for Rome to claim no one defies her to say publicly to uh, her crucified enemy before the watching, horrified world, you're less than nothing. And Christians, we come along and we say to people, everyone, look to the cross of Jesus. Like, what do we expect people to say? And yet, we've got to say it. And what you've got to let motivate you is love. Let love motivate you because this salvation you have, it was gifted to you by grace by your anointed Christ King. And you're no more deserving than those who reject him. We want to be like David here, but we're just as much like the soldiers rejecting their anointed King who is going to fight for them because even though they're rejecting them, him, he still loves them. We point people to the cross because there is no other salvation. And we do it out of love. And we don't just do it for those out there. We do it for each other in here. We hold out the cross to each other here because in the church we struggle with this schizophrenia of, about looking at Jesus because there are times we, just, we think Jesus is absent. And when he's not absent, we think he's absolutely frightening and unyielding like, I can't measure up, I don't measure up, I just disappoint you. 
or, or, you know, he's either absent or when he's not absent, he just doesn't care. So he's not much help to us. We struggle uh, whether he's with us or whether he's not with us. Looking, looking at David and Goliath this Sunday, and this is what we want. We want a vision of God. We want to see God for who he is. We want to see God with David's eyes. And to do that, you got to first see David with God's eyes, as it were. Like David shows us who Jesus is, our powerful Lord who is with us as a servant, who more than sharing in our battle with the forces of evil and darkness, more than just sharing in that with us, our servant king shows up and he lays, he literally, literally lays down his life to overcome ultimate darkness for us, even, even as we were rejecting him. We fear our king has abandoned his people. Here's the wonderful reality. The reality is we are God's people only because he has not abandoned us. We fear our Lord and Savior has abandoned us. The reality is our Lord and Savior was abandoned for us so that we would not be. We are not alone if we have eyes to see, the eyes of faith. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. And we do, we ask for eyes of faith to behold our Lord and Savior for who he is. Just that, our servant, Lord, and Savior, who's done what we can't do. We, 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 we need those eyes of faith uh, for ourselves. We need them for each other here in, at Cornerstone, uh, for our brothers and sisters in the church uh, across Houston, across the world, Lord, that we would continue to hold up the cross to one another and to speak with grace to one another of see, see your servant king and how he loves you and how he has saved you. Father, not just to each other, not, not for us to just be growing in our faith, but Lord, bless us to take that gospel out to the world, to people who are dying without it, that they would know the love and the service and the salvation of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.